music is so ominous. It's like getting ready for something serious. If you have your Bible, let's open together to the last book in your Bible, Revelation. Today, chapters 10 and 11, or most of that. Most people don't like talk like to talk about judgment, right? But the Bible has judgment in it because God is righteous and He is holy and He is good and He is just. And we're in a section now that's looking at several of the unfolding visions of John, one that contains a vision of seven seal judgments. And then there is an interlude in chapter 7 between the sixth and the seventh seal. And the seventh seal opens up, and there are trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments run through chapters 8 and 9, and then before the final trumpet occurs in chapter 11, there's an interlude of chapter 10 and the first part of 11. When the seals come to a conclusion at the end of chapter 6, there is a question raised, and the question raised is, with God's judgment coming into the world through the judgments called the seal judgments, who is able to stand? Who can survive the judgment of God? What's the answer? Chapter 7. Chapter 7, that God's seal on those who are experiencing life in the final days are protected by God, uh, by the empowering Holy Spirit who comes to indwell. It's what God does to every person who trusts in Jesus. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit and protected that we will make it to heaven. So if you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you've called on Him to save you from your sin, the Bible promises that God places His Holy Spirit in you as the permanent presence of God in you. And the Spirit guides our life and protects us through life. This is a certainty that we have. So, seals, a promise. Those who stand are those who are sealed. And then the next set of judgments were last week, chapters 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments. We saw six of them. They were increasingly terrifying. And then there's this interlude, which I think is meant to answer a second question. If the seals asked who can stand, I think the end of the trumpets between 6 and 7 asks this question. What should those who are sealed do and be until the Lord returns? How about that? What should we be about if we are in the last days when all of these final things are coming? What is it that we should be about and be doing until the Lord returns? I want you to look in your Bible just for uh, a quick second, uh, because what you can see is um, 
In chapter 9 and verse 13, not on the screen, it says, and the sixth angel blew his trumpet. That's the sixth trumpet judgment. And then you don't have a trumpet judgment until chapter 11 and verse 15, where it says, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so you have this little section in there of chapter 10 and first part of chapter 11 that's going to be the interlude between trumpet 6, trumpet 7. Everybody got it? Really? Are you excited about it? Okay, so what the, what's the question? What, what should the sealed, protected people of God be doing in there? So let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, John, who has seen lots of visions, and can I just say that the visions that John sees are simply showing us things are not what they appear. You ever go through life and say, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that was actually there. I didn't know he felt that way. I didn't know she felt that way. I didn't know that was there. Well, John's getting a picture of what's going on in heaven while he's living here on earth on the Isle of Patmos, and he's seeing pictures of things, and he, he sees these visions, and chapter 10 is the start of another related but a, a, a new glimpse. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, not on the screen, but he says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. What I did when I read my journal going through here is I put a little check next to everything that I think is an allusion to an Old Testament picture. In this section, there are over 20. So today's sermon is going to be about two and a half hours because we're going <laughs> to pick apart every one. No, you know what? We've decided not to pick apart every one. We're not going to do that. We're going to try to get the big flow. But I'm just telling you, for every eschatological geek in the room, this is your home. You, you need to be in chapter 10 and 11. It is the most complex section, perhaps in all the book of Revelation, because there are so many allusions to what John, who is in 95 AD, right? This is just 30 years after Christ went to the cross. He grew up in the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament. He's seeing these things, and God's guiding him to write them down. And every one of them, I think, in John's mind, he's thinking, oh, wrapped in a cloud. Let's just take a minute. What was wrapped in the cloud in the Old Testament? Mount Sinai. Moses gave the Ten Commandments. What happened? God came down in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Where's, where's the rainbow? Rainbow start here in the United States about 30 years ago? No. no. The rainbow came from God as a sign of his promised mercy forever. Okay? After the flood, with a rainbow over his head, and a face like the sun, shining like the sun. We have several images of that. And his legs like pillars of fire. Where's that coming from? Well, Daniel had some visions of statues with pillars of fire. I'm just saying. All of these little nuanced statements would possibly take us back to Old Testament ideas that John is relying on. But anyway, there's this huge angel, and he has a scroll in his hand, and he set his foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, 
And he called out with a loud voice like a lion, lion roaring. And he called out, and the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, what does seven mean? It's a fullness, completeness. When the seven thunders, I was about to write, but then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders, what they have said, and don't write it down. Huh? John sees a vision, a huge angel coming down. He stands on sea and land. So whatever he's seeing now is going to impact all of the universe, all of the whole earth. And there's thunder, which is associated with the revelation of God, perhaps the judgment of God, and John is told, don't write that down. Maybe it's too terrifying. What did the thunders say? Don't worry about it. We're not meant to know. Otherwise, John would have written it down. There's still a little mystery here. Don't write it down. Okay, then verse 5. And the angel on the screen that I saw standing on the sea in the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, and earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it. So you have a picture of this massive angel in John's vision, raising his hand, swearing allegiance to heaven, to God. And then the second part of Verse 6 and 7. Let's read the first phrase together. That there would be no, no more delay. All right, something's happened. We're, we're coming down close to the end of the purpose of Revelation. What, what John is seeing is he's seeing that an angel comes down, there's no more delay. We're getting down to the very end. And I think all the rest of Revelation is going to unfold very quickly. But that in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The angel is saying that when the final trumpet sounds, the fulfillment of God's purposes are going to be fulfilled, just as he announced through the servants to the, uh, the prophets. As the prophets had said, so when the seventh trumpet sounds, it's going to be over. It's going to be fulfilled. Now remember, what John is seeing, he's seeing these visions, and then he's seeing a reiteration of the vision or another glance of the vision. So this is what the angel comes down on the earth and says, it's almost over. Verse 8, not on the screen. Then I heard a voice from heaven. He spoke to me, go take the scroll that's in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the scroll, and he said, take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter and your mouth sweet as honey. Okay, anybody know anything about that image? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Another Old Testament. What? This is the revelation of God. This is God's message about judgment and salvation in the scroll. And John is told to eat it. Okay, it's a vision. It's apocalyptic, right? It's not a real scroll. He's not really eating it. It's like a picture. What's he doing? He's internalizing it. He's absorbing it. He's accepting the fullness of it. And it's sweet as honey because in it the Lord is acting in salvation and making the world new and Satan is going to be destroyed and the kingdom on earth is going to be established and it's bitter because terrible judgment is coming. Okay, does that raise any questions? Anybody want to ask any questions yet? Okay, yeah, it raises a lot, right? But what we're going to see what 
John sees a vision. Angel comes down. He's got a scroll. He says, take that, eat that. He eats it. It says, ooh, it's sweet. There is salvation coming. Oh, it's bitter. There is judgment coming. I think that's the most abbreviated sense of what's happening here. And then at the end of that, verse 11 of chapter 10 says, and I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. There's a word from the angel to John, you must prophesy. Now, John had a very limited scope of prophesying. He was sitting on an island in Patmos. He's not going to go much from Patmos anymore. But this was his command. You have got to go out and, and prophesy. What does prophesy mean? It means to tell forth the word of God from here to many peoples and nations and languages. Listen, isn't that what God always wanted? Why did he choose Israel to be his people? That through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God wants to reach all the world. And he says to John at the end, seeing this vision, you need to prophesy to nations and peoples and languages. Now you're thinking in your mind, here's seven churches. Remember in chapters 2 and 3? And John is going to send this letter with this word to the seven churches. You must prophesy about every people, tongue, nation. Everybody in the world needs to know this message. It's a reiteration of really the very purpose of chapter 1 and verse 19 where Jesus tells John, write all these things down, send them to the seven churches. And John was told, you're going to have to do that. I want you to just have that if you conclude verse chapter 10, it's another picture that John sees of the coming end of the world and this message, which answers the question that I raised at the beginning, what should the people of God be doing until Jesus comes back? What's the answer? How about that? What, what should the people... who already you know, are sealed in him and know him, what should they be doing until he returns? We should be prophesying. I think I should probably keep that. So verse, chapter 1 of verse 11 sort of explains this. It kind of goes on. Prophesying how? John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, here's a lot more imagery, a lot more allusions to Old Testament things. But with this in mind, you need to prophesy to all the nations, languages, and peoples of the world Follows by, I was given a measuring line. Now, this measuring is, again, an Old Testament reference to Zechariah chapter 2. A measuring line in Zechariah chapter 2, Zechariah says, I lifted my eyes and I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to measure Jerusalem and see what's the width and the length. And a measuring line was a way to sort of sense the the size of something, the scope of something. And God told Zechariah that there was a man who was going to measure Jerusalem because there was going to be conflict to come to 
Jerusalem, and in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, God says, while you measure that city, I will be to Jerusalem a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord. I will be her glory. When John uses a measuring, he is having in his mind, I think, Zechariah chapter 2, where God told Zechariah to measure the temple and that the reason he would measure it because God was going to protect everything that was in it. He was going to preserve his temple, measuring it, preserving it. The act of measuring implies protection. Only on the main temple, you can see, the outer court is given over to others and Gentiles, which we'll see in a minute. But who goes into the inner court of the temple? Who goes to the inside of the temple? Big question. Who in the Old Testament picture of the temple could go into the inner temple? Only the priests. High priests to the Holy of Holies. And priests in there. And the outer court... Gentiles, again, it's imagery. Measure the temple, protect and preserve it, and the altar and those who worship there don't measure the outside. Okay, so what is the temple? Are you measuring of bricks and mortar? Is John being asked to take the calculations of the temple, you know that what happened to the temple 26 years earlier in 70 AD was what? The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. This is 26 years later that John's getting this message from heaven, measure the temple. Do you think John is being told to measure a literal building? Some people think that at some point in the future, a future temple will be built in Jerusalem, and it will precede the return of the Lord, and that's a possibility. There are some lines of theological interpretation that says in the early parts of the very last days of the return of the Lord, a new temple will be built in Jerusalem. But I don't think that's in John's mind. I don't think John is thinking of literal bricks and mortar and building. In fact, with Jerusalem leveled, Remember, Jesus said, do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And later in Revelation chapter 21, John's looking at the new city that's going to come, and is there a temple in the new city that's going to come? Well, yes and no. In the vision of the new Jerusalem, he writes, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord... God, the Almighty, the Lamb are its temple. So John's not being asked to measure a literal building, I don't think, here, but to measure what? The people of God are referred to as a temple. Now, this is where I'm going to illustrate. It's sort of, uh, okay, because is anybody's mind just a little tired of all the connections here? Yeah, it's hard, but it's good. But if John is being asked, you need to prophesy to all the nations of the world, I want you to measure my people, protect them, preserve them, and the temple, which is not a building, but I, I would argue the temple here is God's people. 
Where do we get the picture that we are the temple? You got a good place to write in the notes of your journal these verses. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That's you people, you people. I once got in trouble for saying that to the congregation, but you know what I mean here. We people are the temple of God. I think this is what John has in his mind. Chapter 6, verse 19 says something very similar. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What if we all really had the biblical idea that my body is the temple where God dwells and we collectively as the church who all love Jesus are the temple in which he dwells? We are the the temple of God. You know, I received a very um, encouraging email this week with really good and straightforward questions to me Um, from an anonymous person who who wrote and said, I I just need you to answer these questions. And I was so happy to get it. But it was a question about if if I'm a Christian and trying to follow Jesus, what does the Bible say about the physical part of my relationship to a girl I'm planning to marry? What is a good place to draw the line? I get that question. I asked that question. And when I was asking it for myself, I said, I want it to be as far out there as possible. (laughs) And then as I grew and began to coach other people in their life, I said, well, what what does the Bible say about a physical sexual relationship with someone you're not married to? Where, Where is the line? It's going to collide altogether with culture unless you believe this is true. Do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have of God who is in you? You've been bought with a price, so give glory to God in your body. Can you give glory to God in your body while you're engaging sexual relationships outside of God's prescribed directions for a man and a woman. Can you? No, you can't. You can do it, but you can't glorify God while you're doing it. You belong to God. If you look at the further context of this section, it really is the reason why Paul encourages people not to engage with prostitutes. Why why would you have sexual relationships with someone that you're not committed to if the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay, we just got really practical, didn't we? You are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Second question that was asked was this. Um, What does the Bible say about us living together before marriage? Does the Bible say anything about that? It's a good question. The Bible assumes that people who engage in sexual relations together are in, in marriage 
And the Bible prescribes a very narrow field that the place for sexual fulfillment is in the covenant commitment of one man to an, one woman, and that actually living together um, steps outside of that without the commitment to marriage. So in our culture today, sort of anything goes, and we're all tempted in many ways to try to get around whatever we can, but what does God say? Um, you, you should be joined together. God's plan for sexual intimacy is for a father shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one. And the place for intimacy is in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. What? But because of immorality, every man should have a wife and every woman should have a husband. What is the Bible saying? That the place for sexual fulfillment is in marriage. Should we live together before marriage? No, you shouldn't. So, okay, if you hear that here at church, I hope you would expect to hear that from what God says. And actually, if this is a, a situation in which you find yourself, this is where we would say, may the Lord just guide you with a sense of His grace and forgiveness to repent of that and change directions. Why? Because you're the temple of God. He dwells in you if you know Christ. The last question is this. The last question is, what does the Bible say about underage drinking and going to college parties? <laughs> what does the Bible say about that? Nothing directly. But by extension, there are many principles that you could apply to that. What does the Bible say about underage drinking? Well, it doesn't say anything about underage drinking because there wasn't a drinking age particularly prescribed in the Bible. There were prescriptions about drinking in the Bible that you don't get drunk with wine. We have a law, though, that there is an age for drinking, and you live under the authority of where you live, and so you honor the governing authorities where you are, so you follow the law. As a follower of Christ, you live under the laws that you are in. So if you're not 21, you shouldn't be drinking. Why? Because the government says? No, because God says you live under the law of the land in which you live and honor God by honoring the authorities that are prescribed for you. Should you go to college parties? It's not in the Bible, except is it good for you? Does it lead to edification? Uh, does good company help your character? Does bad company corrupt character? Yes. So you make discerning decisions about where you should go based on this fact. That's the underlying one. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in me, and I want to live for God. Okay. That's not in Revelation, but I, I needed to share a little something that you could take away as a nugget and say, okay, I didn't get all that stuff about all the Old Testament signals, but I can jam on that, right? You can jam on that if you say, my life, my body, what I do sexually, what I do consumptively is because I belong to God. All right, let's go back to what John's saying. I ask you, um, we're going to skip the others, but there are several more verses that talk about the temple. Um, can you just put back on the screen the prior verse, um, verse, verse 1 and 2? So, 
we looked at measure, we looked at the temple. Um, if we were to look at two other places about here, you can see at the very end of this section, it says that it will be given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months. I'm just going to give this to you very quickly, but 42 months is probably not a statistic of precision, but a symbol as most all of the numbers in Revelation are. 42 months equals 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years, which is sometimes referred to as time, times, and half a time. Let me give you those again. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. These are all the same period of time, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 in days, time, times, two times, and half a times, all reference to a period of time. The question is, what does that period of time mean? Those all of those numbers are used throughout the Bible, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, but I think it's a symbol, not a stat. Some understand it to be a literal three and a half years, others that it stands for the whole time that the temple of God, the people of God, are under pressure from the nations. The time when Jesus began his temple, when did Jesus begin his temple? The establishment of his body the body of Christ started at Pentecost after the crucifixion. Jesus raised, the church begins, time, times, and half a time, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260. Could be this period from the first coming to the second coming. It's all the time, a limited time in which Jesus began his temple by the shedding of his blood until the day when he returns to earth. You'll know that Genesis, uh, Revelation 12, John uses the same number for the time that Satan goes after the woman who gave birth to the Messiah. It just seems like it refers to the time between Jesus' first and second coming, the time when the churches in the world caught in the conflict of all the clashing kingdoms. Okay, that's enough. There. It's dense, but you're, you're with me. Let, let's look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for, there it is, 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. So out of this section there is a measuring of the temple. There is the granting of authority to my two witnesses and that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. I think these are thinking of the same thing. Out of, you're going to prophesy to many peoples and nations and you're going to do it for 1260 days, for three and a half years, for the period between the first and second coming. If John is saying that, then what he is saying is that there will be two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. 
in order to accomplish verse 11 of chapter 10, prophesy. I think it's the call. What do the people of God do in the time between His comings? We witness. We are the witnesses. Now, some people think that the two witnesses are two people at the end of the age, and they have these tremendous powers like Moses and Elijah, and you will see many references to Moses and Elijah in the rest of uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 11. But it's possible, and I think what John is doing is giving us a picture of the witnesses that are the temple, which are the people of God, in between the first and second comings of Jesus. To me, it makes sense that the two individuals are symbolic. They're called lampstands. Have we seen lampstands before? Lampstands chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 20, is that the lampstands are the churches. And then chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation writes seven letters to seven churches. And when you read the seven churches, what do you find out about seven churches? There are two that are faithful there. The two faithful churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Ephesus lost his first love. Sardis was wealthy and famous, but dead. Pergamon and Thyatira tolerated compromise. Laodicea was lukewarm, but Smyrna and Philadelphia were faithful. And the Bible says that a biblical principle of listening to a witness is that there are two of them. You don't bring an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses. So it's possible that what John's doing here is saying there are two witnesses. I saw two witnesses, two churches. Maybe that's a symbol of all of the church in all of the time between the first and second coming of Jesus, during which time we are answering the question, what should the temple of God, the people of God do until Jesus comes back again? And what's the answer to that question, everybody? We should bear witness. We should bear witness during this period of time. We are the witnessing community to turn the hearts back to the Lord. Now, we don't have time to look at all the rest of those, but you would look through verse 5 and verse 13, and you would see many more complicated allusions to Old Testament things, including the great city and um, images of Moses bringing plagues. And I think it's just that the church has the opportunity to be strong in its witness and to be effective in its witness and for the church to go through suffering as well. And that's what it's been like for the church since Jesus ascended into heaven, is it not? That the church has had triumphant times of proclaiming the gospel and the church has suffered. And I think the church will suffer and the church will proclaim. And we're living in 2023 and what does God ask us to do? It asks us to be a witnessing community because we are the temple in which he dwells. And you might remember this, that Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. What do you think is in Jesus' mind for his church until he comes. It's that his church would be his holy temple and that we would be a witnessing community. And he's promised to be with us 
to measure us and protect us, but some of us may give our life in the preaching of the gospel. I've said some things here today that would get me killed in Pearl Street. Don't you agree? Yeah. And worse, around the, around the world, our brothers and sisters are losing their lives by standing with Christ. And God promised that's the way it would be to the end. There would be loss and there would be proclamation. But we're his temple. And then in chapter 11, verse 15, which we read earlier, the seventh trumpet will blow. And it will say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. The end is near how are we going to live in Boulder, Colorado in 2023? Will it be that we give ourselves to every pleasure of our life? Or will we say we're the temple of God? Will it be that we say we're going to put our head in the sand while the world is going to hell? Or will we say there is salvation in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the world. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's our message. That's our calling. And he's coming soon. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you give us a picture of things which at times is very challenging to discern. But there are certain things that we know for sure. And that is that you are who you say you are. You are the living God. This is your world and when your world doesn't work your way, there is trouble. And I know you are coming back to make all things new, to restore, to judge, to establish your kingdom, and to make things new. Until that comes, would you give us grace to live in the day we are, a day of trouble, a day of trumpet warning, turn to the Lord to be saved. And would you just give us a commitment, I pray, to be your people, the temple of God, the witnessing community of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would you lead hundreds and thousands of people in this city who do not know who you are to understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I pray for anybody who's here today far from you, would you just open their heart to believe in Jesus Christ and find the hope of God through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Okay, let's stand together.